Hi, my name's John Kasher and welcome to Cash Talk, where there'll be no boundaries and a lot of straight talk. All things money, business, and just everyday stuff. Hey guys, before we get started, just a quick reminder that all the information in this podcast is of a general nature and not tailored to your personal circumstances. So please seek personal financial advice before acting on this information. Hello everyone and welcome to the last episode of 2022 and today I am joined once again by Mason Thorne. Mason, how are you? Good mate, good. It's been, been a long year but um, but a good one for, for many people so I think it's been a, an exciting year and um, yeah, looking forward to wrapping up the last conversation for the year and then starting again next year. Yeah, that's it, that's it. Now, today we're going to be talking about ownership structures and obviously why they're the key to most people's uh, success in getting them right and we, we're Talking about this is because what, this is one of probably the biggest problem areas that we find when we see people is around owning their assets in the wrong structures and then obviously trying to fix them. And we want to kind of deep dive as well to into some of the considerations that we take when, we, when we're looking at ownership structures as well. So Mason, let's just maybe give them a little bit of a debrief of some of the most common ownership structures that are around in Australia and, um, and what they kind of look like. Yeah, no, definitely. So... Fortunately, in Australia, the most common one that most people hold, well, well, everyone holds their own individual name, of course. Um, so that's the most common one. But most Australians also now hold superannuation funds. So that's another common common ownership structure. But some of the more um, obscure ones, we've got companies, we've got some trusts, we've got investment bonds as well, which are, are getting more and more popular as, as time goes on. And we've got joint names as well. Um, so that's individual, but how in joint name so that's a different ownership structure again and there's mm. pros and cons to each of these um mm. and each are quite useful in their own way um but yeah getting this right crucial yeah and so there's there's obviously a list of all of those and obviously probably individually is is pretty kind of um common sense to most people the asset is held in your individual names any income that you earn or any capital gains is if it's realized, is realized at your personal tax rate, okay? Now, also the other thing is from an asset protection perspective. Now, depending on your circumstances as well too, um, if you are in, say, a risky occupation and you were, for example, to be made, uh, you know, under, you know, risk of being sued or your money taken away from you, um, individual names don't really hold much asset protection because essentially what's in your name is up for grabs, Okay. Now, this is the same when it comes to the jointly owned assets as well, too. Jointly owned essentially just means that it's either maybe you and your wife that are jointly owned on that or you and your, your, you and your husband um, or you and your partner. But it can also be two friends that are commonly kind of owned. And um, essentially, it's just individual names in both scenarios. Um, so the assets that are held of your portion of that jointly owned uh, asset uh, are assessed at your, marginal, at your marginal tax rate in regards to income. But as well, too, from an asset protection perspective, doesn't hold too much asset protective measures regards to the jointly owned. But we get into superannuation. Now, superannuation is obviously, you know, for, for most people that are obviously working now and for most people that have been working for some time, superannuation is far becoming one of their biggest assets. And Mason, what's the what's the tax considerations from a general rule in regards to superannuation and why do we love it so much? Yeah, good question. So generally speaking, superannuation, it's hard to beat tax-wise. So internally in the fund, you're taxed at 15%. Um, mm-hmm. 
when you compare that to the average individual who gets taxed around that 32 and a half cents in the dollar. So already you're twice, more than twice, um, more beneficial from a tax point of view, just have holding those assets within superannuation. And a common one that we get, John, I know, I don't know if you've heard this from clients at all, but occasionally you might hear someone say superannuation is a bad investment. Mm-hmm. Now, when someone says that, you can go back and say to them, actually, superannuation is not an investment at all. Superannuation is just a tax structure. It's the investments mm-hmm. that are held within superannuation that are the investments within. So you could have all cash inside your super fund if you really wanted to. Um, but yes, it's a, it's a bit of a, a, bit of a funny one. Um, superannuation has lost a fair bit of trust. Um, I feel like people mm-hmm. just don't trust it. Um, yeah. The government's going to take it away, all this type of stuff. Um, but when it comes to a tax structure for your investments, very, very hard to beat um, from a mm-hmm. tax point of view. But the consideration is, are you willing to hold it in there until you can access it when you're retired? Mm-hmm. So that's a big consideration. So yes, you get these awesome tax benefits, but you've got to be willing to park that money for a long, long time. Well, not, not long for everyone, but if you're a younger person, that's mm-hmm. a huge consideration. So it's not just looking at the tax effectiveness. It's looking at, okay, how long am I willing to put this money away for? And, and, we, and we do have some clients, Mason, that fall into this basket where they've got really, really great superannuation funds. They've gone really, really heavy in regards to potentially some salary sacrifice and employer contributions. They've really gone heavy, but, you know, they lose the ability to kind of call in on that money if they want to retire early. And I have a client um, that was came to me in his early 40s. Um, we'd done some contributions into superannuation and we needed to be very, very conscious on how much goes into superannuation because he had to retire early. He already wanted to retire early. Now, interestingly enough, approaching his late 50s now, he actually got made redundant, okay? And because he was made redundant, first thing he said was, all right, well, how am I going to last the rest of my days until I can actually access my superannuation? And interestingly enough, we timed it nearly absolutely perfectly. Um, So he's got money outside of superannuation, which we've done. Um, He's got some shares and dividends that we inherited a part of the relationship. We weren't willing to sell those because they would get crystallized in regards to losses. But now he's going to be, we've got the game plan over the next two, three, four years that he he will reach age 60. And then the other kicker from this is because he's permanently retired, um, he will be permanently retired in age of age 60. Well, he'll be actually able to access his superannuation tax free. And that's the biggest kicker. So it's not just the 15% of the ownership and the tax that you get along the way, but also under most conditions, and please, there are some caveats to what we're talking about now, but generally speaking, he's now able to receive his superannuation and we're intending to do it in the form of an income for him, um, absolutely tax-free and we've built up enough so that he can live out the rest of his days not needing to worry about money. That's, that's exactly right. That's that's the real perk of superannuation. So having all those assets, once you do retire, having your assets within that super environment in a tax potentially tax-free environment, you can't beat that, can you? Like it's, it's tax-free. So it's, it's fantastic. But there is a caveat there, isn't there? Because when it comes to then thinking about estate planning down the line even further again, there's superannuation is not always the best vehicle when it comes to estate planning because there can be some some drawbacks when it goes down to the beneficiaries of, of the fund, isn't there? There's some really, really big considerations to be made. Mm-hmm. Now, mate, so we've got actually a, a question from one of our Facebook um, uh, community members. Um, if I can't access for a long time, should I invest in high risk? Um, now, 
Essentially speaking that one of the rules to investing is if you are investing for long term, you are able to take on more risk than if it was a short term investment. Okay, so anything that's short term, you don't want to be taking a lot of risk because usually you want the certainty of the money actually being there. Okay, but when you're talking about long term, you can potentially take on more high risk. But that's that's not just the answer to this question. Yeah, there's more than that than that just the time horizon that we need to take into consideration before we go into high risk, isn't it, Mason? One hundred percent. So it's a great question though, um, and, it's, and thinking the right way. Uh, but yeah, it's, that's just one of many considerations. Um, it's not as simple as I'm young, therefore I'm high risk. Um, I wish it was that easy. It'd be fantastic if it was that easy, but unfortunately, not quite that easy. There's other things we need to consider. Um, you need to take into account, yeah, how, how do you feel about seeing that money go up and down? Like, yes, it's long term, but mm-hmm. in reality, seeing, seeing your super fund drop down 30 40%, you might not be able to handle that. And that's that's totally fine too. Um it's just, yeah, so it's not the only consideration, but it's definitely a strong consideration. So I think you're definitely thinking the right way. Yeah, definitely. Short term, you know, low risk, medium term, medium risk, long term, high risk. But there are some caveats, especially in regards to your risk tolerances and how much you can actually tolerate as well too. And then also remember that you should only be taking on the risk that's required to achieve your goals and aspirations. Okay. The lowest risk to the highest potential return. That's kind of the way you want to think about it, not the opposite way. Now, thank you very much for the um, questions and keep them coming. Now, Mason, um, superannuation obviously then turns into pension, which we've briefly spoken about as well too. But there's considerations as well too in regards to potentially um, trust structures, companies, stuff like that. So maybe what we might do is start with a, a company, yeah? And talking about companies there's two companies there's an active company like a trading company okay that's actually actually um uh, you know a business now that does get a bit of a discount in regards to how much it's currently taxed out in australia but what we're going to be talking about today is generally just a normal holding company that's not actually trading it's actually just holding assets so mason what's the how does that work in australia in regards to company ownerships and what's some of the considerations that we need to take in, in this case yeah, it's a good question. So one of the main considerations is that is that tax rate. So in Australia at the moment, companies are taxed at it's anywhere, it depends on the size, they're coming from 25 to 30%. So mm-hmm. in terms of comparing that to your own personal name, a company does look appealing. So oh, it's a bit of a less tax on the income, fantastic. There's a bit of that asset protection as well in there as well. So that's another factor. But what we also need to consider is what's the purpose of the investment you're going to hold in the company? So if, you're, if your purpose of that investment is to, at some point, sell the asset, then the company may not be the right structure for you because what the company doesn't have is the great capital gains tax provisions where you get that 50% discount. So that's going because if your intention is to, let's say you bought a property inside a company, yes, the income's taxed at that lower tax rate, but if you go to sell it down the line, you've got a big hefty capital gains tax bill, no discount there. So all those gains you might have made along the way could be eaten away when you go to sell it later on. So knowing your intention long-term of that asset, crucial when picking what what structure to put in. So that's the main drawback I see from a company structure. Um, But what about you, John? What do you you see as a drawback from the company or what do you see as a positive of the company structure? 
Yeah, I think it, it's essentially a company structure allows you also to have delayed tax payments. Um, and so what I mean by that is that when you have a whole, when you've got a company, you can hold the money in there and get taxed. Let's just assume at 30% now. Okay. So the company pays tax at 30%. But let's say, for example, we did that for a 50 year old. Okay. So they were, they were 40. We did it for 10 years. They're holding it in that structure. And then at 50, they decide that this is early retirement. We're going to be financially free at this point. What we can essentially do is start drawing out of the company in the form of dividends. Now, if that person's individual tax rate is now zero, they're not earning anything, we could potentially draw out after in December 2022, approximately $10,000 tax out of that company if there's no income and get a full credit on those, on those, on those dividends. So I like to see a company as a delayed um a delayed tax vehicle as well too, because it doesn't mean that the tax that you've paid in the company is is foregone forever. That's a really good point there. Um, yeah, when it comes to that. So yeah, again, playing out that head, what's the purpose of the company? Is it, is it to retire early? Because as you say, we get those dividends and that can potentially be tax-free, or well, not tax-free, but getting that tax back. Um, yeah, I think mm-hmm. that's a really fantastic one. I think another consideration too, when it comes to companies, and I'll put trust in this bucket as well, is sometimes when we go to start our investing journey, I know I've heard I've had this conversation a number of times, where it's like, should I set up a company and trust now? And they're just sort of starting out. It might be only a small investment. Company and trust, they one, they take it, it's a bit of a setup cost and there's ongoing cost because you've got separate tax returns, separate financials, all this type of thing. So mm. a little investment, you probably wouldn't consider it just because the ongoing costs are going to eat into any profits you could potentially make. But... Mm-hmm. It's yeah, so that's where I see a bit of drawback. So maybe it's not it's not for everyone, particularly when you're just starting out. So the, the investment has to be somewhat sizable mm-hmm. to, to warrant those setup costs and those ongoing costs. Yeah, one hundred percent. Now there are you talked and briefly spoke about trusts. Now trusts are another entity, and they can sometimes be in combination with some other uh, structures as well. But the two most common uh, trusts, because there are a series of them, is a unit trust and a discretionary trust. Now, a unit trust is essentially similar to like a company where the parties in there own the units, part of that unit trust, and essentially all of the income and all the assets kind of owned in in relation to those units. But probably the more popular one is a discretionary trust. And a discretionary trust is essentially an entity that owns these assets, okay, on behalf of the beneficiaries of that trust, okay? And what that does in regards to discretionary in its name it allows that any income or any capital gains or anything like that can be distributed, yeah, and and or discretionally used within that trust. Okay, now the beneficiaries of that trust are the ultimate own, ultimate owners of the trust. So, what what I mean by that that might be individuals, that might be companies as well too. Okay, and it is often used, especially where there's a lot of income. Um, from individuals in like individually um, for, for tax reasons and for asset protection reasons. Now, let's say, for example, we'll just use an example so that we can realize this. Let's say, for example, you've got $200,000 um, of earnings inside your discretionary trust. What you've got the ability to do is discretionarily move that to the beneficiaries. Now, let's say you've nominated two beneficiaries on your trust resolution before the end of the financial year. You could essentially distribute maybe $100,000 to one beneficiary and distribute it to another a beneficiary for $100,000. If you held that individually, for example, 
what that would mean is you would get taxed at $200,000 rather than get $100,000 of those both individuals as their beneficiary. So you can see that having those options and having those ability to be move, moving within that is very, very important as well. Now, the other thing as well, too, when it comes to estate planning is also the change of ownership or the change of, not the change of ownership, the change of control, okay? Inside a trust is a trustee, okay? Who essentially controls the trust for all intents and purposes, but does it on behalf of the beneficiaries. So let's say, for example, I accumulated and amassed a large amount of wealth, okay? And I wanted to have my two sons as the, as the trustee of that trust rather than me as the trustee. It's pretty easy for that to be done with no change of ownership, no change of structures, and they can essentially assume the control of that trust. So from an estate planning perspective, these trusts work really, really well, but I must admit it is on the radar of, ATO, of the ATO because um, they are very powerful and um, can minimize tax very, very well. And when it comes to that, the ATO wants to be all over it as well too. But these form, these form a lot of the wealth creation, especially the clients that are in accelerated growth stages. These entities like companies and trusts really do play a part. No, definitely. I think you raised a really good point there too because with all these structures, they're all fantastic, but in their own way. But the government can always change the rules. So you might set up for one purpose and the government might take away that that reason. So it's like it's that's a caveat. Like You've got to be prepared to pivot when you need to. So it's not a set and forget for a lot of these things. So you might start off with having things in your individual name because it makes the most sense at that time. But as your wealth thing grows and grows, you might say, okay, now it's probably time for me to consider a different structure. Maybe I should consider a bit more superannuation or maybe I should consider setting up a company or these types of things. So you don't, we also don't know what the rules are going to do. So it's hard to plan 20 years from now what the rules are going to be because I, can, I, I don't know what they're going to be, but I reckon they're probably going to be a bit different to what they are now. Um, so being able to pivot and change, crucial when it comes to these things, but you can only make a decision, I guess, based on what you know now, but just be willing to to pivot and to be and keep up with the rules because what you don't want to do is be caught out. It's like, oh, I didn't know this. I thought it was this. Keeping up those rules, crucial as well. When you're yeah, that's it. That's it. Mate, there's an absolute thunderstorm happening outside. So hopefully my internet holds up on this one. I uh, I always get scared when the uh, thunderstorms happen. It feels like my internet sometimes on a drawstring. Um, but Mason, the other one that's come really popular of late, and why I talk about of late, I'm, I'm probably talking in the last couple of years. They've been around for a very, very long time. But that's the rise of investment bonds. Now, we are not talking about the asset class here of fixed income. Yeah, um, we are talking about investment bonds. Mason, What's an investment bond and, and and how do they work? Yeah, good question. So, yeah, they have been around for a long time, but not many people actually really know about them. So they were traditionally they were called insurance bonds because effectively inside this investment vehicle, it's, it's, it's an insurance policy, basically, mm-hmm. that you can invest in assets within this policy. So it's quite a special little setup. Mm-hmm. Now, why is it so great is that they come under the Life Insurance Act. So there's different, mm-hmm. different rules that come up out there. So... They get taxed at the company tax rate, so a maximum of 30%. Usually, though, mm-hmm. because of what they do with and how they manage those investments, the actual tax is usually less than 30%. In some cases, we're seeing the tax rate around 15%. So it's similar to superannuation mm-hmm. in that regard, but it depends on how they sort of manage the assets during the year. Um, mm-hmm. But let's say a maximum tax rate of 30%. So already, mm-hmm. if your tax rate's above that, there's a benefit of investing in an investment bond. Another mm-hmm. great thing is... If you hold these bonds for a period of 10 years or more, capital gains tax 
there's usually no capital gains tax to deal with. So if you held that in your own name and you were to sell these assets, you'll deal with capital gains tax all in your own name. This case, no capital gains tax. So that's a major, major benefit I see of an investment bond. But there are some strict rules around this. We've got the 125% rule. So what this means is from year to year, you can't make more than 125% of the previous year's contributions. So for example, John, I put $1,000 into my investment bond in year one. In year two, I can do 1,250 and no more than that. If I do go over that, what happens is I reset the bond and it goes back to year one. So and I talked about 10 years before. We also want to keep, we don't want to reset that period because once we get past that 10 years, that's where the real benefit is around that CGT and managing mm-hmm. those tax. So that's crucial knowing that 125% rule. And where people get caught out, John, what I've seen in the past is some years they might say, oh, I didn't make any contributions this year. Now, what's 125% of zero is unfortunately zero. So what that means yeah. is you can never contribute again unless you want to reset the bond. So that's, that's where I see people often get caught out. Um, mm-hmm. but that's just something to be aware, aware of um, when it comes mm-hmm. to these investments. So when it comes to these great tax vehicles, usually mm-hmm. there is rules around getting these benefits. There's no mm-hmm. um, no free lunch, so to speak. Yeah. And, and what's unique about an investment bond over superannuation, superannuation is usually held individually unless it's obviously through a self-managed super fund. But these bonds are oh, on individually on behalf of the trustee. But usually these um investment bonds they can also be individually owned they can be jointly owned yeah they can be held um, in a family trust for example so you can actually look even around like the combination of these ownership structures when it talks about an investment bonds as well too now mason we've talked a lot about these different ownership structures but whenever we're developing financial plans we're using a lot of these in combination so we're not owning all assets in one you know individual or joint or you know, so you know, so on and so forth. So for all the viewers and listeners to understand that we use a lot of these in combination. So we might have a client with a family trust for this particular purpose. We might have a client with this company for this particular purpose, this superannuation like this, um, individually owned over here. Now, this is the key to ensuring that we're utilizing all of the best tax structures and all of the best asset protection structures for the overall wealth of the client. But there's important facts, and I've given some there. But Mason, what are some of the most important considerations when we're looking about these ownership structures? Yeah, it's a, good, it's a great question. And I think one of the major ones that we sort of see, it's, it's really on age of the client. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, if a client's in their late 50s, mm-hmm. then superannuation becomes that more attractive because the, the major drawback from superannuation is you're locking away your money for so long. But if you're in your 50s, that's not actually true. So you get the perks of the great tax structure plus the accessibility is around the corner. So it's a win-win. It's hard, very, very hard to beat. That's not saying it's always the case, um, but in a lot of cases, that is the case. But if someone's younger, yes, superannuation, we still use it as part of the overall strategy. That's not as strong as maybe an investment bond might be because if they want to retire early, we want access to the, that money. Investment bond provides a really great structure when, when it comes to that because we can build up wealth sell it down CGT free if we've met the rules and that money can then be used for an early retirement. So you might set up the investment bond to maybe mature, mature so to speak, at age 50, funds that mm-hmm. 10 years up to age 60, so superannuation, then you use your superannuation ongoing. So using this, these structures in combination to the overall plan for the client. And then 
I guess, other considerations, John, is, is, is this client self-employed? If they're self-employed, they're exposed to a bit of extra risk. So asset protection becomes even more important for these guys. And I think a, a common mistake I see when it comes to self-employed people is that they actually invest in their operating company. So that's not protected. Um, and that could be accessed if they were ever to be sued and things. So if you're working a high-risk occupation, yeah, maybe you set up a different company or a different trust to hold, hold those assets for you in, for asset protection purposes. Yes, there's extra costs to that, but mm-hmm. asset protection is, it's in a lot of cases, asset protection is worth that extra cost. And then mm-hmm. another consideration again is what is the client's intentions with these assets long-term? What's their estate planning purposes and making sure we've got that all in mind. So as you can see, it's quite a, quite a minefield and quite a putting the puzzle pieces together. It's definitely mm-hmm. not the same for everyone. Yeah, definitely. And when you talk about the purpose of investing, it's something that we talk about a lot, especially when it comes to property purchases. Like property purchases are huge, getting the accounts and getting us in the same room and talking about the intention in the first place. Because you could, for example, have someone who's doing a property flip, a development, yeah? And they're not going to hold that property for longer than 12 months, for example. So the question is, is that that CGT, you know, uh, 50% discount, that only applies for assets that are held longer than 12 months. So if you're not going to hold that asset for 12 months and you're essentially going to hold it less, well, is that is those structures the, the better ones? Or does a company come in play that has that flat tax rate? Yeah. So these are considerations that need to be made in regards to timeframes, in regards to purposes and holding as well too, okay? And then obviously what the intentions are. You know, are you buying a rental property that you're going to, going to just sit on and not do anything with? Or are you going to potentially, you know, hold it for four or five years then develop it. There's just all these other aspects that come in before you choose the right ownership structure. And the other one as well, too, is in regards to, you know, just simply owning it from a tax perspective. Like you might go, you know, tax structures like trusts and companies aren't appropriate for your situation. But then when you boil it down to say jointly owning something, say with your partner, do I own it 50-50? Do I own it 99-1? You know, do I own it you know, what kind of percentage do I own it? And then what are the benefits of, of that? You know, is the property going to be an income focused, you know, or is it going to be negatively geared? Is it going to be, you know, a capital focused scenario, which I'm going to realize those capital gains at a longer period of time. These are all the decisions that I know we spend a lot of time with it, but I, I find this is one that people don't take the take the time to do. They have knee jerk reactions. They see something, they want to buy it, and then they just go, oh, I'll sort it out later. The problem is, is sorting it out later can be very, very costly. In most cases, if you want to change ownership structures, it means you're paying capital gains tax and in some cases stamp duty on that purchase as well too. So um, be very, very mindful of that. Now, Mason, the other one that I want to go into a little bit as well too is just in regards to the estate planning of some of these structures. And actually the one that I want to go a little bit into is just around superannuation um, and the importance of it and, and, and like how why it's so good as well too. Yeah, no, it's a great, it's a great one. It's a, a curious thing that not many people know about superannuation is it doesn't automatically form part of your will. So it's actually, it's actually, the, it's up to the discretion of the superannuation trustee as to who gets this, who gets these, who gets these funds. So while you might make a beneficiary nomination, if that beneficiary nomination is not a binding nomination, they yes, they take into consideration. But they look at your whole situation. Oh, yes, you've made a non-binding beneficiary, but we actually think the money should go here. Therefore, it's going to go here. Mm-hmm. Now, you might think that's probably unlikely, but it, we've seen it. It happens. It's it's quite scary. I know there was a, there was a famous case up in where I live, John, in Shep, um, 
there was a uh, a lawyer who um, who nominated her her mother as um, the beneficiary, but actually had a secret boyfriend. So the boyfriend's mm-hmm. come through. He said, "Oh no, I'm a, I'm a dependent," mm-hmm. and then the Sufan said, "Oh, there's someone's a dependent. Therefore, the money's going here. It's not going to the mum. Sorry about that." And there's nothing they could do about it. It was crazy, um, but it's just it's just what happens. Um, people come out of the woodwork when it comes to money. Um, we've seen it again and again. Um, but yeah, superannuation is a really funny one when it comes to estate planning. Yeah, that's it. That's it. And so there's a lot of considerations that need to be made in regards to you know the overall ownership structures. But I can't emphasize the importance of getting this right. Don't rush your decisions when it comes to assets. You might be looking at a small asset of say a thousand bucks or five thousand dollars or whatever is small in your eyes, but in 10 years time or 20 years time or 30 years time, when you may need to access those funds, just imagine what that, those funds could be at that point in time. Yeah. So setting them up right at the start is so important. And hopefully today we've shown you some of the considerations and the way that we think around own ownership structures and the combinations that we do. Okay. Um, there is not no, you know, set rule for everyone. Every time when we do this for every single person, it is customized to them. Why? Because everyone's situation is different. The assets they currently own, the purposes, the intentions, the estate planning requirements, they're all different for everyone. So you might be looking for a book that shows you a step-by-step guide in regards to everything that you need to do and just follow that. The reality is that's probably the most dangerous book if it's out there, because in the last 20 years of being in the profession, I'm yet to see someone that we have done the exact same thing for someone else. It just every single person is completely customized to their unique scenario. So you know, we encourage everyone to seek personal financial advice about their scenario. Everything we go through today is of a general nature and hasn't taken your personal circumstances into consideration. And if you think about this and feel like it's a minefield, I can tell you it is from a professional and I know Mason will tell you the same. But getting it wrong is just so costly. Um, it's just about getting it right and making sure that your assets are held in the right names and that you're not giving any donations to the ATO if you don't need to. And, you know, you're protecting your assets as they continue to grow and that they're aligned in, in exactly how you want them to be. So on that note, thank you, everyone, for joining us. Mason, thank you very much for jumping on. Um, I, I really appreciate it and, and uh, look forward to 2023, where we'll be unpacking a, a whole lot more in regards to the world and finance and keeping people informed and, and letting them know a little bit of our insights in regards to certain different topics. Oh, beautiful. Thanks, John. And uh, yeah, everyone have a great Christmas and New Year period. Yeah. And to everyone, once again, like Mason said, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. And we'll see you in 2023. Cheers. Have a great one. See you guys. Thank you for listening to another episode of Cash Talk. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you want to learn more about me, jump onto my Instagram at, at thejohncasher and you'll find me there or at my website at www.johncasher.com.au. Thanks for listening. Cheers.